Shisho Kanakuri. I have no idea if that's how you say his name, but that's how I'm going to say it this morning. Shisho Kanakuri. This man holds the Guinness Book of World Records record for the longest marathon ever ran in the history of history. Now, they didn't make the marathon longer. It was still 26.2 miles. But Shisho started running this marathon in 1912 at the Stockholm Olympics. He was on the team for Japan. He was a runner on the Japanese team. And so he is in Stockholm. He's running the race, and he gets halfway through the race, and he just completely collapses. And he is terrified, and he's filled with fear, and he's filled with shame. And so he doesn't finish the race. In fact, he doesn't tell anybody about what he's about to do, which is go into hiding for the next few decades. He sneaks off from the Olympics. He gets back home in Japan. They filed a missing persons report. No one saw this man for many, many, many years. And then finally, about 50 years later, after he just in shame and dismay just disappears, just ghosts from this marathon, he pops back up in Japan. Now it's a little bit later, and there's, a, uh, there's TV at this point, and so there is a TV crew in Sweden that heard, hey, this guy's back on the map. His red dot is up on the radar. Let's go after this guy, and let's see if he wants to finish this race. They find him. They convince him to finish the race, and the race that he started in 1912 was completed 54 years, eight months, six days, Five hours and 32 minutes later. This is Shisho in 1912. And I don't, I can't really explain this picture. How did cameras get worse? You know, <laughs> 54 years. I'm just going to say he was moving so fast. All right. He was moving so fast that it was pixelated and blurry. He started, he ran well. Things didn't go according to plan. And so what did he do? He did a lot, something that a lot of us do when things don't go according to plan. He ran and he hid in shame. He was delayed. His life was off course. But then he was pursued, just like many of us are pursued by God. When we go off course, when we run and hide, he pursues us. And they came after him. He rallied. He finished strong. Fifty-four years, eight months, six days, five hours, and 32 minutes later, his race was complete. There's a lot that took place in between, and there will be a lot that takes place in between when we start our life with Jesus and when we finish the race. There will be delays. We will be dismayed. We will be persecuted. There will be trials. There will be suffering. But as believers, it is our goal in the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of Jesus, God looking down, waiting for us to cross that line, that we finish the race and we finish the race well. We're at the end of First Peter today. Jacob said 12 weeks. I counted 14. He's much smarter than me, way better at math. We're going to go with 12. We've been in 1 Peter. Every single word, every bit of punctuation has been covered in this letter, even the hard parts. And this morning, we wrap it up. So this morning, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. Peter writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, 
seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then Peter closes out with a little epilogue. Here's who wrote this, who is, here's who delivered it, and here is who it is for. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, send, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. We have five things, five more things before we close out this letter that we get from Peter as we go out into the world, as we continue to run our race, as Paul would put it, as we continue to work through trials, through persecution, and suffering. I promise we're going to talk about much happier things in the next few weeks to come. The first thing is go low to be lifted up. Our first point today, if you are taking notes, go low to be lifted up. Verses 6 and 7, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So Peter is breaking this down into two parts. We have humility and we have anxiety. He is saying, once again, backing up what he covered last week, think of yourself less. That's what humility is. It's not thinking less of yourself. Think of yourself less, as C.S. Lewis said. And if we're thinking of ourselves less as believers, we're filling that void by focusing on Jesus. Keep having the mind of Christ. Again, as Paul would say, keep serving others first. The lowest of people in society, the sickest of people in society, the people that no one else can stand to be around, the people that no one else wants to be near, you go to those people that are distanced from that are disenfranchised, that no one wants anything to do with, and you love and you serve those people. He didn't say, unless you're doing really good at work. He didn't say, unless you live in this neighborhood. He didn't say, unless you have an RV garage that makes your house look like a fire station. <laughs> he didn't say anything like that. This isn't based on status. The only status this is based on is who you are in Jesus. And so if you are in Jesus, you go to others, no matter where they're at, you make yourself lower than them. And as you make yourself lower than them, at the proper time, you will be lifted up. If we let pride get in the way, remember pride is from the enemy. Pride is of Satan, of the devil. He only ever acts out of pride. Jesus only ever acts out of humility. If we are already lifting ourselves up, then what work does God have to do? But when we lift ourselves up, that is a false sense of status. We're doing that out of our own strength, and that will perish. But if we lower ourselves, if we consider others before we consider ourselves, if their needs are more important than our wants and our needs, then we will love them, we will serve them, and they will come to know Jesus. We will have the mind of Christ. So Peter goes from humility, and I think very connected, goes straight into anxiety, casting all your anxieties on him out of humility because he cares for you. And so what we see here is that true humility really looks like true de dependency. When we look at anxiety, yes, there are certain parts of anxiety that are 
uh, you inherit. They are part of your family. They are genetically, you are more apt to be just a more anxious person. But I think there are excuses that we can make that just excuse our pride when it comes to anxiety. I know because I'm one of those people. I'm one of those people that says, no, God, I'm not going to trust you with this problem because I want to take care of it. I don't actually think that you are going to take care of it, God, being all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing, and completely able. I'm going to hold on to this myself. And so a lot of the anxiety that bubbles up in my life, and I think a lot of the anxiety that bubbles up in your life, can actually be handled if in humility we just let it go. But instead we say, God, I can handle this without you. And we deceive ourselves. We say, God, I don't need you in this struggle. We become arrogant. We say, God, I don't think you can handle this, and we experience faithlessness. I think a big issue when it comes to our anxiety, when it comes to our humility, is we hold on to our problems. And when we do that, we see that size and focus of things in our lives in our lives, determine the nearness of things in our lives. And so three questions to really help assess what our focus is actually on here. Is it on us? Is it on our problems? Or is it on Jesus? What is bigger in your life? What is bigger in your life? What do you spend your time focusing on? Is it your problems or is it Jesus? Just take an inventory of your day. What do you spend time worrying about? What do you spend time worshiping? What do you focus on more, your problems or Jesus? And then, based off of those answers, what are you actually closer to? If we think of ourselves less, our problems get more distant. If we think of Jesus more, Jesus gets closer. Jesus is always there. He just gets more of our attention. And so, let's give our problems over to him. I know there are so many problems in this room. Let's give them over to him. Why? Because the God of the universe, God the Son, Christ, fully God, fully man, whom everything was created for, through, is madly in love with you. It says, because he cares for you. I want to tell you something. You don't have to pay Jesus to care. There's a lot of people out there that you can pay a lot of money to so that they can pretend to care for you and give you a lot of things that might work, might not work. Jesus loves you. Instead of you paying him for him to care, actually what he did for you was he paid your debt. He paid so that you could be broken and then made new. He paid the cost of his life on the cross so that you could go from dirty to clean. He actually paid the ultimate price so that you could be set free from your problems, so that you could be set free from fear, so that you could be set free from anxiety. When you kick your worries, when you kick the things that you are anxious about off the throne and give Jesus back his proper right place on the throne, he cares for you. Only Jesus can sustain you through those problems. Only Jesus has victory over those problems. His yoke is easy. His burden is kind. Give him yours. Take his upon you. So what is it that you're worried about this morning? Is it your health? Is it the health of somebody else? Is it your relationship with people in your family? Is it your relationship with people in the workplace? 
Is it what the government is or isn't doing? Is it the things that your kids are being exposed to and the agendas that might be crammed down their throats? Maybe your kids don't go to public school. Maybe they go to homeschool. Maybe, what am I going to teach my kids today? How am I not going to hurt my kids today? What is it that you're worried about? That's just a sampling. There are so many things. But I will say this. No matter what it is, take it, identify it, lay it at the feet of Jesus. Pray and ask that he will take care of it. And I promise you, when you put your faith, when you put your trust in him, he will take care of it. And he might not take it away immediately. He might use it to build and grow your faith in him. But I guarantee you, I guarantee you, because he has done it in my life, and I know he wants to do it in yours, that he cares for you, and he wants to grow you, at least so that you can have the tools to deal with it and move closer to him in your dealing with it. And then eventually, one day, he takes it from us. So go low to be lifted up. Lay your anxiety at the feet of Jesus from a point of humility. Number two, keep watch for lions. Maybe you know the song, In the Jungle, the Mighty Jungle, the Lion Sleeps Tonight. A wee! Yeah, it's a great song. That's what Peter's saying here. In the jungle, the mighty jungle, the lion sleeps tonight. Verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. How do you resist him? You be firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. What we see here is that when crisis is looming, that means that the devil is lurking. So watch out. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Peter, previously in his letter, saying don't use things to run away from suffering. Don't use things to run away from your problems. Don't run to escapism. Instead, what he is saying here now is just be awake. Be alert. Don't be asleep to everything that's going on around you, because as soon as you are not alert, as soon as you fall asleep, that is when the devil will pounce. So be sober-minded, be awake. For us as believers today, what this means is know the schemes of the enemy. Know that he wants you to doubt your existence. It is insane to me the amount of people that would claim that they are Bible-believing Christians actually believe that there's a devil. It's right around 40% of people that profess to believe in the word of God actually believe that there is a devil, that there is an army of darkness that opposes the army of light, that opposes the true king, that there is good. Yes, they want to be on the side of good, but if that's the only thing that you believe in, the enemy is going to obliterate you. So we have to believe that there is an enemy. What he wants the most is for us to think, oh, he's not real. Oh, there's no spiritual warfare taking place in my life. There's no demonic oppression that is coming against me as a child of God. That is absolutely a lie. But that's absolutely a lie that he wants you to believe. Why? Because if he makes you believe that, he can go unopposed and unchecked in your life. How do you fight something that you don't even know is there? How do you fight something that you don't even think is there? He is there. And he is prowling around and he wants to take you out. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. So he wants you to doubt his existence. Scheme number one. Scheme number two, know that he opposes God. We know that he opposes God because he fell from heaven because he wanted to be God. 
everything that the enemy does, he takes from the kingdom of God and he just twists it. He says, we don't worship God as part of his creation. No, actually all of his creation needs to be worshiped. We need to be God's. He takes the same plan over and over and over and over, and that is that he wants to be worshiped, and he recycles it throughout the span of history, the entire timeline, the same thing, just recycled, repeated. He wants to be God, so he opposes God. Know that he opposes. Scheme number three, Jesus. Know that he opposes. Scheme number four, the gospel. The enemy wants to come after anyone who is in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has defeated him. He has bruised his heel as he crushed his head, and he will defeat him once and for all. That means if you have Jesus within you, that he is going to come after you. I do not want you to be surprised by that. As a member of Asante Church, I don't want you to be caught off guard by the enemy. He will attack you. He will come for you. He will come for your family. A lot of things we just write off as, that's just coincidence. I think sometimes, yeah, that could be the case. But I think sometimes there's a spiritual factor into this that we need to take into account. Jesus opposes, or Satan opposes what Jesus is doing in your life through the gospel. The enemy is in direct opposition to many of you in here today who are going to hear the gospel, who are going to be presented with an opportunity to make a decision based off of what you hear to follow Jesus, and he does not want that to happen. Why? Because you are his for an eternity if he can keep you away from Jesus. You are his for an eternity if he can keep you away from the gospel. He is in direct opposition to everything Jesus is doing in your life through the power of the gospel because he doesn't want you to be on the opposite team. He doesn't want you to just go asleep and docile and soothed to awake and in direct opposition against him. And so he is against Jesus. He is against the gospel. And we know that he is in direct opposition against the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. The Holy Spirit seals you. You cannot belong to him. You cannot be possessed by him. You can only be influenced by him if you belong to the King of Kings. So know that you are sealed, but know that he will do anything he can to get your attention to get your, to be able to have influence over you so that he can just divert you slightly off the path that God wants you to follow. Know his schemes, but also know that he knows your schemes. He has been around forever. He is a master of human behavior, and he has been watching you. Know, church family, that you are vulnerable when you are off balance. This entire letter, Peter is writing to Christians who have been suffering. When are we off balance? We are off balance when we are suffering. When you are off balance, it doesn't take much to take you out. I learned this lesson very well in high school. I played one game at defensive tackle. They took me out after six plays. I was directly across from an offensive guard who was 275 pounds. I ate all the cookie dough I could, and I could only get to 240 pounds in high school. What I didn't know about this 275-pound offensive guard was that he was also undefeated for four years straight in 4A high school wrestling. He didn't even hit me with his face mask for six plays. He waited for me to take a step towards him. As soon as I was slightly off balance, he grabbed my shoulder pads and he threw me on the ground. He made me feel like a little girl for six plays. There was nothing I could do to stand up to this giant of a man. And he didn't even just manhandle me. He just waited for me to get off balance. He knew exactly when to hit. 
He knew exactly where to hit, and he knew exactly where he wanted to throw me. And know that that's what the enemy wants to do to us when we get off balance. So stand firm, Peter writes. Stand firm in the faith. You want to be balanced? Center your day on Jesus. Go to Jesus in prayer. Spend time in the Word. Don't get distracted by everything else that is around you. Remember, the enemy wants you to be asleep. What Peter's saying is, wake up! Read the Word. Spend time talking to the Lord, asking Him, God, protect me. Help me to put on the full armor of God. Help me against the fiery arrows of the enemy. Keep me safe against the lion that is prowling to take me out. And then know that you are vulnerable when you are in retreat. So don't run away from an enemy that has already been defeated. Look at him square in the eyes. Know that your victory is in Jesus and in Jesus alone. That Jesus has already had victory over him and you have victory over him through the work of Jesus on the cross if you belong to Jesus. You don't have to run anymore. You don't have to be scared anymore. You don't have to hide anymore. Instead, stand firm in the faith. Hold your ground. Face him with the armor of God. Do not turn your back because then you are exposed. Look him dead in the eye. Claim the victory of Jesus over him. And then know that you are vulnerable when you are in isolation. Know that you are vulnerable when you are alone. We can, in our lack of humility, in our pride, think that we are the only people going through what we are going through. If any of you have middle schoolers in here, I've been a student pastor for a few years of my life, and one thing I could bank on every single year is that anything that happened to those middle schoolers in our student ministry was going to be the worst thing on the face of the planet. And on top of that, they smelt pretty bad too. Why was it the worst thing in the entire planet? It's because it's the first time anything like that has happened to them. And I think we can be the same. Any suffering that comes our way, this is the worst thing that anyone has ever encountered. Any suffering that comes our way, I can't believe that anybody else in the history of humanity has ever gone through something like this. In our isolation, we are vulnerable because we can make it all about ourselves. What Peter says is realize that there are Christians all across the world that are going through the same kinds of suffering that you are. And I would say because we live in a country that there is still religious freedom, I would say that we actually have it better than most of the world. There are people in China that are dying every single day. There are martyrs for the faith every single day. The suffering you are going through may be slightly different, but it's probably not worse. And if it is worse, know that you have a family of believers that is surrounding you, that is ready to lock arms with you and carry you through that suffering by the power of the Holy Spirit as we come together. Really, All that this is, is a war war between the lions. If you have seen the movie The Lion King, then you know that there is, that is way too dark. There's Mufasa, and Mufasa, that's the king. That's the true king. And then there is Uncle Scar, and Uncle Scar is the worst, but Uncle Scar is a counterfeit king. Now, it would take the son of the true king and the Lion King to defeat the enemy that is Scar. Now, in our story, God did not 
die. He sent his son to die on the cross for us, but God the Son did die on our behalf. And in his victory over sin, because he did not stay dead, he did not stay in the grave, on the third day he rose, we have victory over sin. We have victory over the enemy. Scar, the enemy, has been defeated in our lives. And so we live, we walk, and we reign if we are in Jesus, in the victory of Jesus. Third point, rely on God to make things right. Don't take it on yourself. Rely on God to make things right. Verses 10 and 11. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To be with him, or to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Church family, as we have been going through this book, as we've been going through this letter over the last maybe 12, maybe 14 weeks, we have experienced suffering in our midst. We've experienced suffering in our lives. But what does Peter remind us here? This suffering that you are experiencing, this suffering is only for a little while. Our lives are but a grain of sand on the beach. Our lives are but the width of a hand. We have all of eternity that we are looking at ahead of us. The suffering that we will face here is only for a little while. Why? Because God is calling us out of suffering and into his glory. How? Through his grace. Jesus put in the work. Jesus has processed, filed, and signed the transfer papers, and we are on our way out of this mess, and we are on our way home. We have been covered in his grace. He has called us up into his glory. And then what does it say? This is absolutely beautiful. And if you are suffering in this room, and if you have suffered, and if you have foresight to know, you can look forward into your life and know that you will suffer. He will confirm you. He will give you security. When we are suffering, Again, we are off balance. He will put firm footing underneath us. He will restore you. And this hits home. Because there are things in our imperfect state as human beings. There's a fallen world that we live in. And because of the fallen nature of our world, our bodies aren't always right. There are things going on underneath the surface. There are things going on on the surface that shouldn't be. And it's not the way that God planned things at the very beginning of time. But he will make that right. He will restore those things, all the broken parts, all the broken pieces of yourself, all the broken parts, broken pieces of the people that you love. It's our promise that we hold on to right here. They will be restored. They will be put back together. They will be made new and they will be made 200% better than we could ever experience here. So those things that have been taken away from you, those things that have been stolen from you, those things that didn't go quite the way that you had planned, stand firm in your faith, church. They will be restored. Those loved ones that you lost, they will be restored. Your body, the way that it used to be, that you wish it was now, it will be restored. Just hang on. It says that God will strengthen us. So that means any weakness that we suffer, 
Any area of spiritual weakness that we suffer will be made new, will be made right, will be put back together. And it says that he will establish us. He will make us stable and he will firmly position us. And what is our response to God for doing these things in our life? It is the same response that Peter has as he writes. Praise him. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Fourth thing we get out of this letter, verses 12 and 13, live alongside like-minded believers. Now you read the end of this letter and you're like, all right, man, where are you getting this? This is a stretch. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. What we see Peter say here when we look into the background of everything he is writing is that relationships lead to longevity. Relationships will sustain you in the midst of suffering. And so as a church, as Christians, as believers, as disciples and followers of Jesus, find friends that are following Jesus. Link arms with those brothers. Link arms with those sisters. Fight alongside those people. And then watch those people become family. Peter's friends, we have Silvanus. Silvanus was known as Silas all throughout the book of Acts. Silas was close to the ministry of Paul. Silas was the man that would be delivering this letter. And then Peter writes, he says, she who is at Babylon, he is writing to the church. She is referencing the church that is in Rome, not in Babylon. Babylon was an evil spirit that basically followed whatever earthly power that was opposing God during that time to the church, to the loved ones, to the young believers, to the scattered, dispersed believers due to suffering and persecution. This is to you. And then he talks about Mark. And we know Mark as John Mark. Is John Mark actually his son? No, but it is somebody that he has loved and he has served alongside so much that he has become very near and dear to him. John Mark, he traveled with Paul. He traveled with Barnabas. Peter knew John Mark from the very beginning because we see in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, that the church meets at his mom's house when he is young. John Mark was relieved of duty after a missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. Paul said, this dude's a chicken. We don't have room for him. He's not strong enough. He can't cut it. Barnabas says, no, man, that's not how we're going to handle this. They disperse. They break up. John Mark goes with Barnabas. He is eventually restored to his usefulness for the kingdom of God. And then we see a full restoration in that John Mark is the very person that writes the gospel of Mark. Now, the gospel of Mark is written through the oration of Peter, explaining the life of Jesus. From, useful, or from useless to useful, because he went from broken to made new, all because of the work of Jesus and his redemption in his life. He goes from friend or acquaintance to friend, and from friend to family, and from family to son in the life of Peter. What made all of this happen? Suffering. What made all of this happen? The gospel. What made all of this happen? That they linked arms and they lived alongside each other in relationship. They got messy. And as it got messy, they got back together. They fought to forgive each other. 
And then they fought for the advancement of the gospel and the displaying of the kingdom of heaven. And as they did that, they got closer and closer and closer. I can look out at all of you who are sitting in this room, and I can think of the first time that you came into this church. And I can look out, and I can see somebody that was a complete stranger to me that probably didn't even want to be here. And I can see the work that God has done in your life. For some of you, we've gone from acquaintances to friends and from friends to family. How? Because, man, we've been through it. Because we fought for something that counts. Because we've said that my life, <clears throat> that your life, that our lives together, they're nothing. But if we attach them to the mission of Jesus and the advancement of the gospel and the displaying of the kingdom and the being the church, man, that's something that will echo into eternity. That's something that's so much bigger than just me or you could ever do in our own strength. But out of the power of the Holy Spirit, as we come together week in and week out, and as we sweat for this, as we sacrifice for this, to see the people in our community, the people in our families, the people in our workplaces give their lives to Jesus time after time. Again, something that we are celebrating today in baptism. Man, look at us now. This church could close tomorrow. My life would be filled. My life would be so worth it because of what I've seen God do in your life. But I know it's not over. I know he's going to continue to grow you. I know there's people that it's your first time here today. And we will go from acquaintance to friend to family, all because of linking arms together and going after the work of the gospel. Suffering, going through hard times together, but staying hard after it in Jesus. Fifth and final thing is no Jesus, no peace. This is the corniest thing I've ever said in a sermon, but I think I stole it from a bumper sticker. It said, no Jesus, no peace. But no Jesus, no peace. Peter writes this. It's a little awkward. Greet one another with the kiss of love. It's 2023. Look, man, we've been through a pandemic. Let's not kiss, okay? I'm going to kiss one person. And then I'm going to give smooches to my girls. But uh, don't greet me with a holy kiss. Let's go nuts. Let's go bro hug, whatever we need to do. Greet one another with a holy nuck. Uh, greet one another with a holy high five. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. What do we take away from these few words? Be loving. Be warmingly welcoming. Openness is quick to go. Warm welcomes are quick to go when persecution, when hard times come in. And then Peter's saying, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter knows the source of that peace. Peter lived with that sense of peace so we can have true peace. We see it in the life of Peter. He writes this letter. He lives the rest of his life. Peter dies around 67 or 68 A.D., a lot of you may know how Peter is crucified or how he died. He was crucified, but he denied crucifixion upright because he said he was not worthy of it because that was the death of his Savior. And so they say, okay, Peter, they got creative. We'll crucify you upside down. What many of us may not know is that Peter was actually crucified right next to his wife that suffered alongside of him and died a gruesome death because of his faith, because of her faith in Jesus. But there was something that happened before this point, 
before Peter went in such a gruesome way. And that happened in Acts 12, where Peter and James are in prison. James is taken from his cell, and he is beheaded. That night, Herod comes over to Peter, and he says, Peter, you're next. In the morning, I'm going to take your head off. Peter's left between two guards to be beheaded the next day. And what do we see Peter do as we read that scripture in Acts 12? We see Peter between two guards asleep. Now, somebody tells you they're going to chop your head off the next day. And then they put you back in prison. They place you between two guards. How well are you going to sleep that night? I'm not sleeping. I'm freaking out. All of a sudden, that anxiety is kicked up into high gear. And this is my problem, Jesus. Not yours. I got to figure out how I'm going to like make a spoon and dig out of here, get all Shawshank on this thing. That's not, that's not Peter. Peter's asleep between two guards. Herod could say whatever he wanted, but Herod was not his king. Herod was Scar. Herod was the false king. Herod was the counterfeit. You see, Jesus told something to Peter in John chapter 21, verses 18 through 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, talking to Peter, Jesus talking to Peter, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Verse 19, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to him, he said, follow me. Herod could say whatever he wanted because Herod was not Jesus. And whatever Jesus said, because Jesus said that he was going to die, that he was going to raise from the grave, and Peter witnessed all of that, Peter knew Herod was full of hot air. Peter was going to put his faith, put his trust in Jesus. And Peter wants that same kind of peace for us, for his readers. We have peace because of a promise. We see all throughout this letter that suffering for us is worshiping, but that suffering leads to glory. That suffering makes us more like Jesus. And we can have peace because we may suffer for just a little bit, but home is just ahead. So church family, we keep longing for home How is it that we take these words today? How is it that we are to be the church and display the kingdom? We suffer well like Jesus, to strengthen our faith and to bring faith to others. We stay humble. We focus on Jesus more. We focus on ourselves less, and we long for home. We live ready for Jesus to return, and we live like home is just ahead. Let's pray.